Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Straight Talk. And I'm one of the hosts, uh, along with Dennis Goffin. And uh, again, let me reiterate that we call this show Straight Talk uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, we are a gospel-centered uh, discussion group. And also, we realize that uh, we want to get straight to the issues. And also, we are headed in the direction between blacks and whites, male, female, uh, class system, rich, poor, learned, unlearned. The goal uh, for all of us is reconciliation. And so we believe that God wants to bring his, what has happened judicially, he wants it to be fleshed out experientially in the life of his church made up of all ethnicities, etc. So we have, a, we, uh, we have a couple of our panelists on so far this morning. Uh, the, the professors, both of them, Lois and Elaine, I'm so glad they're here because they keep, uh, keep our grammar and theology straight, uh, especially in deal with Dennis. So I'm going to let Dennis uh, jump in now and uh, <laughs> say what he wants to say. <laughs> thank you, Van. I love that pun. Well, I, I do thank our permanent panelists, faithfulness of our panel just coming on. We have a few regulars, so we thank for that. I do want to rem say hello to our Facebook viewers, and uh, thank you for being on with us, and also those of you that's been joining us on our podcast, and we really appreciate um, the comments we've been giving on Straight Talk. Maybe later on the show, I'll share a testimony from one of our viewers who just wrote on something I put on. I put the talk on LinkedIn, and they wrote a long comment about how they were joining the show. So we're getting a lot of feedback from people who have been joining the dialogue and the interchange between what we're doing. So um, I want to thank the Lord for that. And um, thank God for uh, Lewis and Elaine who are with us. And some of the other panelists will probably be popping in a little bit. But in the meantime, uh, Van, I put it back in your hands and we can get this talk going. Okay. Well, uh, last week we had on our discussion uh, Dr. K. Whitehead, who is a professor at Loyola of Communication and African American Studies. And uh, she raised, uh, she just went through a litany of uh, uh, suggestions and a commentary on Black history. And I'm hoping that she comes back because, you know, we, I wanted to drill down on some of the points that she made. But since we were having her on for a couple of weeks, I thought that probably the greatest thing we'll be able to accomplish is to note the points that she made. And then well after uh, that show is over, we can always talk about them in more detail. But at the same time, we can raise the issue today. So we're waiting for her to come on. And uh, uh, that's just where we are right at this moment. So <clears throat> I was gonna begin the discussion with talking about, she was our first black female guest on today. And we got a couple others lined up. Lois has a friend and, and others who wanna line up on the show. And uh, <clears throat> it's just a wonderful opportunity to talk about some of those issues. But I believe that Dr. K, we would also call her an activist, an activist. And uh, I think it's very important that uh, for those of you that might have listened to her last week, that I'm, I'm going to bring this up to her when she comes on the show. But I think it's important that we see that there, there, we have to strike a balance. And I'm going to throw this out to Lois and Elaine as well. Uh, we need to strike a balance between piety and protest. 
that there is a place for piety. We, we must live right individually for the glory of God. But there are protests where we face injustices and structural racism. So I'm hoping that we can see that there is a, it's not an either or, it's a both and uh, when it comes to the application. So Elaine, you want to jump in and say hello and comment on the, that point? Sure. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you um, again this week. So in regards to pietism and outright activism and outright protesting, um, I think a lot of that depends on a person's background and their personality. And if they are following after God, what God is calling them to do um, in that moment. For example, my husband is more of an introvert. So someone like him would be more likely to just have one-on-one -on -one conversation with people. And someone who is more like me, who is more of an extrovert, would be more likely to join a march or to do something along that line. So I think that every aspect is important. And like you said, uh, like you said, Van, I think that there is a balance there and each of us needs to consider what that looks like for us, um, not just in this season and not just in this moment, but over time. Yes, that's excellent, Aunt Elaine. Thank you very much. And what about you, Lois? Well, I, I think it's important to look at different ways of protest. Um, when I teach on the Holocaust and talk about the resistance part of, of the Holocaust history, there are so many different ways that people resisted. Some were active resistance, like in the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh, but even things like uh, you know, being able to try to hold some kind of uh, Shabbat or uh, honor Pesach, you know, Passover, or, uh, you know, just the smallest thing <clears throat> could be a part of that resistance. There's, there's spiritual resistance in a sense. And I think the spiritual resistance <clears throat> that, that people participate in is, is really aligning with the piety aspect with with our spiritual life and like elaine said the leading and guiding of the spirit to know what to do when and what to say and what not to say and who to say it to and and how to be um these are not easy things you know it's it's people sometimes like to separate things into well the protesters and the people that are for law and order well it's just not that simple, you know. Um, I heard recently someone say that, you know, uh, God ordained the United States of America and we should all obey every law. Well, law is a living thing. Law changes. If, um, if people hadn't protested slavery, if, if uh, you know, hadn't, hadn't uh, if the Civil War hadn't happened, if abolitionists hadn't worked, if if uh, you know people hadn't persevered through all that suffering, um, you know we could still have laws that that advocate slavery. If people hadn't if uh, protested about the vote, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't have vo I've voted already. <laughs> um, I you know I wouldn't have been able to vote. So mm -hmm. it's just I, I think there are ways of resisting, ways of protesting, ways of. Uh, advocating and, and working on justice. And it's not the same for everybody. And it's not the same even in an individual's life. I, I sometimes take a day to just lament and just 
pray and seek God, but that's not just piety. That's, that's protest in a way. You know, I think some of the, the longings and the, the groanings of the prophets were protest spiritually. So they really, I think they intertwine. Uh, protest isn't just walking and carrying a sign or yelling in the street or, you know, that sort of thing. There are a lot of different ways that we need to stand up for what we feel is justice and righteousness as believers. Mm, excellent. Dennis, back to you. Uh, Van, you, you and I have talked on a lot of shows about piety and protests. And I think that um, in terms of that, I love what uh, the two of them have mentioned about that. I agree also that uh, piety is not just about trying to be religious or just looking at it from a religious uh, viewpoint. There are ways that we can uh, show our piety in terms of helping one another. So Jesus, when he asked Jesus, uh, who is my neighbor? And he gave this uh, the story of the Samaritan. I think that we see an idea that we have to intermingle in, in everybody's life, everybody's situation, everybody's uh, struggle, regardless of your station in life, your racial makeup, or what society that you're in. And I think wherever we see evil, we want to see that evil dealt with. And we want to pray for God's will to be done. I love the internet disciples prayer. Um, thy will be done and thy kingdom come. So if God's will is universal, if it's sovereign, uh, then we pray that some of us that's been called to piety in terms of prayer, in terms of looking at spiritual asset, some of us is called for the social justice, but mingling both of those together in terms of where our market is and where we uh, deliver, I think it's an important aspect of where we go with this show. And I think that in terms of shooting straight, we are, uh, and, and I agree, there isn't, a, there isn't a distinction between the two. I think that we are both talking about the same thing. We're, we're showing our piety through protests. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to hold up our placards, but we are showing that we show the love of God for all people. Okay, so we're talking love and uh, in the realm of justice, it, it should flow out of love still. You, you, you want justice because love is, is in your heart. And I think about, and I see that Sterling has joined us on. Yes, uh, yes, welcome, my brother. Good to see you this morning. Thank you. We're still waiting on Dr. K for some reason. Yes. But, um, anyhow, so we're talking about piety and protest again, but this time we have Lois and Elaine involved in that conversation that not just you and I and Dennis as well but again I think historically when we think of the birth of the black church in America and uh, my dissertation was about the the wall of separation between the black and white church and as I've talked with uh, several people whether it's on Facebook or here locally in Jacksonville uh, they write me sometimes by email, etc. Uh, I tell them that, you know, the reason that there is a wall is that, you know, the black church was birthed out of oppression and that while the black church definitely moved greatly by the, the awakenings uh, uh, experience, but at the same time, it was born out of struggle. So protest is part of the very nature uh, historically of the black church in America, yet they were a very uh, pious people at the same time. And uh, so, yes, it's not an either or, it's a both and, and there are, there are areas where they 
you know, interface with each other and intersect with each other. And yet there are clear, clear distinctions. And I don't think all protest is waving a sign. Sometimes it's writing uh, your congressman. Sometimes it's, uh, uh, you know, it's legislation. Sometimes it's going to uh, your neighbor and say, you said such and such yesterday. And that was out of order. That was out of place. That's not the way you should talk about your brother or your sister, etc. So again, but what makes that, I think what makes that kind of protest very uh, authentic and ring true with people is that they see your piety, that they see you're not hypocritical, uh, trying to express yourself in whatever you might be facing uh, in society. Elaine? I agree. I agree 100%. I'm sorry, my son had just walked in and walked out. So that distracted me a little bit. Um, but, um, but I do, I agree with everything that, um, that all of you have said. And, uh, and again, I think that that balance is going to be different for each one of us. And that love of Christ should throw through, flow through who we are and what we say and what we do. And nobody does that perfectly. Nobody does that right uh, 100% of the time. And so I'm thankful for grace and mercy in that. Um, and also some humility with that too. But um, I, I really do think that if the love of Jesus is part of our lives and is flowing through us, then there are a multiplicity of ways that that can work itself out. Now, Sterling, I, I bring up this question. I want to share it with you, I think, a little bit too, is that uh, when we talk about this piety and pro, uh, protest, um, at a moment like when we saw Black Lives Matter uh, go on the streets, uh, again, that being the one organization not birthed out of the Black church, uh, do you think that uh, shows the demonstration of a lack of protest within the, the Black church in particular, as well as the white church, uh, and that the reason they went to the streets without the church is because the church had been a little more reserved uh, on the issue of protesting the injustices in whatever way they wanted to protest that? Uh, actually, I, I like to look at it in the context of, um, of history. Uh, you remember in uh, 1517, I believe, Martin Luther nailed his 95, 95th or 9, 95 theses uh, or arguments right. against indulgences to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, and I believe that this act of defiance uh, can be seen to uh, to herald the process of of uh, protest. Uh, and he was no less pious. And I don't I don't uh, necessarily believe that um, that one has to wear the outer garment with a sign that says I'm pious um, because I'm protesting. Uh, I, I, matter of fact, I see just the opposite. I believe that your piety should cause you to protest uh, all unrighteousness and all injustice. And as far as the Black Lives Movement uh, is concerned, I, yeah, I hear people say that it didn't come out of the church, but we have no. to remember, yes, uh, we have to remember that the uh, yes, that those individuals, uh, those young people, are 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 children of, good. of people who were raised in, in, 
and all they're doing is is taking forward that which they've already learned from uh, from generations, and therefore it was actually birthed in the church. Uh, yeah, they're claiming it's not because they have an agenda that is anti-church, and um, they want to sell a, a a concept that that much of the Christian church does not yet or does not buy, except the Pope did just put a stamp of approval on it uh, this past couple of days. But but I, I don't think that that's a statement that is that bears true when it comes down to where did that movement start? I, I think that all movements that are that are focused on writing injustice, writing unrighteousness, they, there's no place for it to start but in the church because Satan's army never cares about unrighteousness or or injustice, matter of fact, they are the author of it. So, I, you know, anyway, I, I put it in that context when I think about piety and protest. Pious, this is who I am. Protest, this is what I do. Okay. Well, I see that uh, Dr. Whitehead has joined us uh, here on Straight Talk and uh, uh, say welcome, first of all, to you, Dr. Whitehead. Thank you. For... Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming back in our, on our panel today. You'll notice that we have Lois Alina and Elaine Buckman back once again, but Lois was not here last week. Uh, she's out touring the country, her, she and her husband. And uh, But anyhow, they're both with us today too. And uh, so as I share with you that, um, Dr. Whitehead, that last week, <clears throat> you are the first uh, black person, woman that we've had on the show. And by the way, we're hearing raving reviews of all your commentary last week, and we loved it, and it struck up a lot of conversation. And uh, I, I wanted to drill down in a little few things that you said last week. Uh, and for our audience, once again, Dr. Whitehead is a professor at Loyola and uh, received all kinds of awards and has her own shows. Uh, like I believe you're on today at three o'clock this afternoon. You got your own show. So we're really excited for you. But I thought that a good uh, starting point of conversation, uh, even though we've been talking about piety and protest, uh, that someone responded and said, well, that, that sister is definitely an activist. And, uh, and they meant that in a positive light. That was not a derogatory statement to use. But I thought maybe we could back up a little bit and, and uh, hear your comments or views on in all that's going on in our society today, in America in particular. Um, where, what do you think the role of black women in America, what do, you, what do you believe the role of the black woman in America? What is the best role and what is the role that she's been assigned to or, or caged by and the full expression of at this time in history? Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I want to begin um, just by saying good morning. And I received word on the chat that my father is on as well. And so I would like to extend a wonderful good morning to my daddy. Yeah. And I miss, um, I just miss seeing my daddy and hugging him. COVID-19 is just taking and taking from us this year. I also want to note um, that I do not have much time today. I'll stay on as long as I can. 
but I am in the middle of launching an institute. It launches next Wednesday. Oh. And it's an institute that is named after my father. It's called the Carson Institute for Race, Peace, and Social Justice. It's the largest initiative that Loyola University of Maryland is undertaking. And so we are hosting a major uh, reception next Wednesday. My dad will be on. We will toast him and toast his work. But I believe that the highest honor that a child can give to their parents is to establish something that will live on in their parents' name long after they're gone. So I'm excited for 100 years into the future to have Carson scholars at the Institute learning about my father and using his light and his work as a lamp unto their path. So I'm working on that today. Um, yeah. And so I will only be with you for a little while because I wonderful, want my dad to wonderful. show up next Wednesday and be proud of me because I've got all my work completed. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. so I will send the link to all of you. I'll send it to you, Dr. Gayton. But I'd like to invite all of you to join us at the open reception to do a virtual toast to the launch of the Carson Institute next Wednesday at 12 p.m. It's open Excellent. for all. Yes. Um, so, yes. So with that in mind, to answer your question, um, I would say that it, it's a little arrogant uh, to, to try to say that Black women have a role that's suited for them, um, given the fact that we live in a society where white people are able to take on any role they want. Uh, they can move in any ways that they want. And we have to talk about the defined spaces for Black women. Black women as Zora Neale Hurston said, uh, in so many ways have been the mules of this society in terms of being the one who are responsible for helping to hold up the foundation. It's black women who were called upon to, to breastfeed white children during the days of American enslavement. You had to work in the fields all day and then you had to serve as food and nourishment uh, for white children that were not your own. It was black women who coming out of American slavery, who wanted to play the lady, if you go and you take a look at some of the writings, um, but, but who were forced to work alongside their husbands. There was no positionality for black women as ladies. You were, you were workers, you were stock, you were chattel. I mean, the, the road to economic uh, advantage for white men went through the bodies of black women. Angela Davis said that white men through slavery had an uncontested access to the bodies of black women. And if you look at some of the writings of white men from that time period, it was, you know, it's like today, children grow up to be, I don't know, Jay-Z and grow up to be Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Oprah Winfrey. During that time, young white men wanted to grow up and buy a black woman so they can build their empire and they can build their empire on her womb. And so think about where we are today and that black women at this point are now the highest educated group. We have more black women graduating from college and getting masters and PhDs in any other race or ethnicity or gender in this country. You have black women who are the highest voting demographic in this country. It's on the backs of uh, the democratic party that black women have carried them forward. And so it, black women are not a monolith. I think black women fit into any role that they will take. Um, it is difficult to understand that completely because black women are so underpaid as well as Hispanic women and, and indigenous women are the most underpaid group in this country. 
when you talk about making a dollar on a dollar, you're talking about white men and Asian American women, Asian American men, white women and Asian American women kind of make up that dollar in March and April of the following year. But for black women, native women and Hispanic women, we don't make the dollar that white men make on a dollar until August, October, almost the beginning of December of the following year. So it is difficult to reconcile ourselves with what does it mean for the position of Black women? Where do Black women fit? I mean, Black women have been pushing open this society uh, since we were brought here in chains. So it's interesting to try to wrestle with that, uh, right. given the particular day and age of what does it mean so, for being positions. So Dr. Whitehood, let's, yes. make, let's be on the universal, let's move to the particular. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you believe as a result of the input of your father in your life, which he's, by the way, we would all celebrate that he's done a good job in raising you. And we celebrate that and we celebrate your appointment and also his next week. But what do you as an activist, as a Christian, as a mother, as a wife, what do you feel that God, how God has ordained you? to make a difference in this society? What do you feel the very call of God, the raison d'etre, the reason for <laughs> Dr. Whitehood's justification for being alive in America? It's interesting because I just got off of doing a keynote speech and the event uh, no less than about 10 minutes ago, which is why I was running a bit late. And I was talking about that same question. Uh, we are living in a very contentious and hostile time. Uh, we're living in a time where our very lives are on the line. Uh, we're living at a moment that when Amy Coney Barrett gets seated on Monday, as the Republicans are pushing that through, we're going to have a right-leaning court that, as Leonard Pitts said to me earlier this week, he can see, and now so can I, a direct line between where we are now to us being on the back of the bus, because the only thing standing between that and the back of the bus is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Senator Rand Paul has already said, we're gonna take another look at that. Wow. So when we talk about what is taking place at this moment, why, why am I here? I think those are a big lofty questions. <laughs> uh, questions, I mean, they are. Yeah. I think it's more than just, oh, I'm here to do this because well, what do we always talk? If you want to see God laugh, make a plan, right? Because he's going to put you in line with the plan that he has for you. I used to ask my sons when I would pick them up from school, um, there were three questions and these questions come out of Jesuit philosophy and will lead me to the answer to the question that you put forth. But I would ask them, you know, um, that in, in this space today, when did you most hear God's voice? What were you doing when you heard God speak to you? And what was the moment when you did not hear God speak at all? Like you did not feel God's presence. God doesn't move, you do, right? Like the sun, you move. Uh, and what can you do tomorrow to have more moments where you can hear his voice, you can feel his hand on your back? What, what can you do differently? Now, they wrestled with this when they were four and five years old. Like, I was on the playground. I pushed my friend. I didn't hear God's voice. And I shared my Twinkie, and that's when I heard him, right? So, you know, they wrestled with it when they were four and five. But now that they're 19 and 17, yeah. these are hard questions for them to answer. Like, what yeah. was I doing in those moments? Well, what does it mean to want to hear God's voice in my life? To want to hear 
God speak to what I'm doing in that moment. The book of Esther, uh, when Mordecai was talking to Esther about a time such as this, right? Like, you know, either you, you, you need to speak up because if you don't, right? You know, God is going to deliver us. He is going to raise someone up. It's been you. And then, you know, perhaps you will call for such a time as this. Mm-hmm. We're in a contentious time, we're in a time when Black voices are being silenced, we're in a time when our rights are being challenged, we're on the cusp of the most important election in this nation's history. And so perhaps God sent me here at this moment to do the work that he has always called me to do, to be able to write, to speak, to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, to speak truth to power, and to be willing to give my life if that is what it takes to be able to see the changes that this country needs to have. Hmm. And and Dr. Whitehead, I don't, I don't know how much time before you need to run away, but <laughs> before you came on the show, we were talking about uh, the, uh, the continuity and distinction between piety and protest. And uh, uh, we had several comments on it, but we'd like to hear your position on this whole either or both and kind of piety uh, <laughs> and protest. Um, I would like to think it's a both and, and it's not an either or. And, and I say that because I, I think very seriously about the work that Dr. King and the Southern Leadership Council did, um, the Southern Leadership Christian Council did when they put together SCLC and they talked about what is the role of pastors during this time? What is the role of the church uh, at this moment? How do we use the church as a, a base to be able to, to speak at this time. I don't see that happening as much anymore. People are separating it as an either or. Um, I think that is one of the main differences between Black Lives Matter and the civil rights movement. During the civil rights movement and despite the way I talk about it, I was not there, right? I did not participate. I was not even born during the civil rights movement. But in studying the civil rights movement and hearing my daddy talk about it, the church was a base. It's where you, where you went to get built up that during the Montgomery bus boycott, they met in the church every night to just as remind each and every one of them, you are not alone. Even if you're alone when you're walking to your job tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., we're all together even though we are alone. Black Lives Matter did not use the church as a base. The young people, so many of them have just been so disappointed and have gotten disillusioned by what is happening in the church because they, they're getting disillusioned by religion because religion is not relationship with Christ, right? There's a big difference between the two that, you know, you may think you have tried Christ, you know, if you taste and touch and see that he is good, then you would never leave, right? So you're talking about being disillusioned with religion. I, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's an and mm. both. I also think that it should call Christians to speak up in these moments. I get very concerned when I see pain in the world and I see Christians locking themselves away in some physical building to be safe and separated from the world. It concerns me uh, that Mm. Christians are not doing the work that I believe we we were left here to do. We didn't get saved and get sent home. We got saved and are here to remain to do the work. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's an either. I think there has to be a direct line between what the Bible calls us to do and what does that look like in the streets and how do we then use the Bible 
to define what we're doing, to add parameters about around our work and even to help us decide how to vote. I think the Bible is a document of truth, means it must be called into play in everything that we do. Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent. And I also heard you highlight that uh, in your commitment to uh, born into the kingdom for such a time as this, is as Esther had to be willing to, you were, you said you personally, even if it cost you your physical life. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is so, that is part of the ethos of Dr. Martin Luther King. And he knew, you know, I think it was Malcolm X who said to him in conversation with him, uh, said to Martin Luther King, he said, you know, we're both glorious old fools mm -hmm. because this is going to cost us our life. And uh, I think that uh, one man put the position, uh, you can't begin to live until you have found something worth dying for. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think it's so admirable that uh, you have found something that is worth dying for. Now, and I love what Jesus says, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. It's paradoxical thought, but it's so apropos to what we're talking about uh, today as well. So I want to make room for uh, uh, whether it's Dennis or Elaine or Lois who might want to jump in here right now with a question for you because you know you're the brains of the bunch right here in our gathering. So hey, I right. make room for uh, somebody else to throw a question or comment at you and see what see where it goes. Well, I just want to respond to what you were saying. I, okay. I, I would I would argue um, that that I didn't find um, my calling. I think it found me. Mm. Uh, I was, I'm, I'm a historian by training. I look at 19th century black women's history. My first book is about diaries written by a free black woman from 1863 to 1865. My goal, my plan when I got my PhD was to remain in the archives and to recover the lost voices of black women and restore them to the historical canon. That's what I had planned to do. And I was gonna do that at Loyola and, and spend time at the Library of Congress and New York Historical Society. That's where I was and that's what I was doing. And everything changed for me mm. with the murder of Trayvon Martin. See, as, as a Gen Xer, I had been brought up you know, by civil rights movement leaders to believe that freedom had come and that you go to school, you go to an HBCU, you get it figured out, you get you a nice house, you get your two-car garage, and you put your children in sports, and you keep moving. I have one son who's a baseball player. I have one son who's a fencer. Like, I was living this kind of middle-class Black life going, okay, this is great. Let me start saving for college, because everything is fine. You know, got a Black president. I mean, like, we have actually gotten to the point where we are post-racial. So I'm so glad I was here to see it, right? Um, but with the murder of Trayvon Martin and having to look my sons in the face and have conversations with them that I had been kind of mentioning, but never dealing with it directly to say to them, look, I have failed. I failed you. I failed because I did not pick up the baton to force this country to live up to its creeds. I did not do, as Dr. King said, I did not force America to be America. 
I bought into the American dream and I assumed that America could work itself out and we can have this great experiment without my participation. I voted and I felt my vote was enough and I moved on. I wasn't putting my politicians feet to the fire. And I had to make a decision. I talked with my husband, I talked with my sons and I had to make a decision that mm. I had to come out of the archives and I switched everything I did even if it was gonna cost me my job, I had not gotten tenure. I said, I am only doing work to help change the world so my sons can get home safely. If that means I'm doing Black Lives Matter training, that's what I'm doing. If I'm writing op-eds because I know that racists down and you know, down on the shore, they're not gonna read my history book, but they will read an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun when they're drinking their coffee. If that means I'm out on the streets, I am protesting, I am writing, which led to me doing a radio show. I am speaking to John and Jane Q public because they are the ones that are shooting and killing my children. They're the ones I have to speak to them. Mm -hmm. So when we made that decision as a family and I did protest marching with my sons, uh, I, I speak all over the country. It's because of that. It's because I want my boys to live as selfish as it sounds. I don't want my sons to be a hashtag. And if that means I have to be a hashtag so that they don't have to be one, then fine. That is what I'm willing to do. But having degrees and sitting up in a fancy house when you are black and black people are dying, when you are white and you call yourself a Christian and people are dying, if you are Hispanic and Hispanic people are dying, then you are a disgrace and you should not call yourself a Christian because you're not exercising love at all. You have taken hold of this world and you firmly rooted yourself into being blessed by the devil and not being challenged by God's word to help change and shift the world. Mm. Well, that's excellent. You know, I'm going to ask uh, Sterling to jump in here because he is one of your father's close friends. <laughs> I know your father is on the line. I don't see his face, but he must be on the phone. And But uh, Sterling uh, knows your father so well and uh, Sterling was alive during civil rights, by the way, Dr. Whitehead. And uh, so this is uh, someone that's going to speak up now that your father, your father is in great relationship with. First of all, I just want to thank you, Dr. Whitehead, for your comments. Um, you are touching my heartstrings. Uh, if only we had done a better job of passing the baton. Uh, and thank you for not blaming us. Um, and I appreciate that, and you did it quite well, and I, I received that. But the reality is that um, we, didn't, uh, we didn't pass the baton. Matter of fact, we may have put the baton on top of the shifro, uh, the, the bar. We may have just um, put it on the shelf because we too may have believed that uh, we had accomplished the beloved community. We may have. And I've had those conversations with a number of people uh, in the past, um, early, early on, before uh, Sister Coretta died, we were, we were together one evening and we talked about this beloved community and she would talk about what her husband was trying to accomplish. And in and, and all honesty, we were celebrating as if we were there. And when you celebrate that you've arrived, then you, you put up all of your traveling clothes and you put up your fighting uh, clothes and so, um, and so I just want you to know, I appreciate the way you handle that. And, and um, I, I, I'm still convicted, but I'm convicted uh, with, with a sense of, uh, of your caring. Uh, secondly, I, I, I'm, I, am, um, I am concerned that 
those of us that are still around, like Virgil Woods and and Gus and your dad and myself, and then a plethora of others who fit into that same category, uh, perhaps we are not yet connecting uh, with the group that is currently on the front line. Maybe we, and I don't know, uh, actually you're waking all of this up in me now, um, but I'm not 100% certain that we are doing everything that we should be doing to ensure that the troops are properly focused and trained. I just don't know that that's happening. And so uh, the comment has been made that the movement didn't the Black Lives Matter movement is not connected to the church. And okay, I, I don't agree with that. I think that their parents and their parents' parents were, and therefore generationally, it, there's a connection. It's vertical, it's very thin, but it is there. And I think that we have a responsibility to go in and, uh, and, and help direct uh, from the back. The, you know, old men are for, for wisdom, young men are for war. And so I think we should be in the back helping and receiving and bandaging uh, and then sending people back out on the battlefront. What are your thoughts about what I'm saying? I would absolutely agree with that. I think that um, unfortunately, um, and Black Lives Matter is a very complicated movement. Yes. Uh, in terms of you know trying to, to pull it out, right? It's a movement that started as a hashtag. Yes. And then got picked up in the streets, and then people ran behind that to establish you know organizations around it. So you know the, the way that Black Lives Matter kind of evolved is just a reminder that it's not leaderless, right? It's leaderful. Right, right. There, are, you know, what Black Lives Matter has done and brought to my attention, which I appreciate, that you know the struggles in Ohio. Although they, although they might be similar to the struggles in Maryland, are different. So we need people in Ohio to work on the ground to change what's ha happening in local politics. Like we need people on the ground here in Maryland, which means you know what's happening in Baltimore City is probably different from what's happening in Howard County, even, right? So Black Lives Matter has shown us the need to have young people directly involved in their own community. The problem, I think, um, and this is where I, I think there's a real disconnect is in the teaching of the history. So, so when I hear young people, as I've heard, say things like, oh, we are not our ancestors, you know, you know, these hands might fly if you don't step back. And I think about the number of times our ancestors, the Dr. Kings of the world, the number of times they were arrested and beaten, like the courage it took to get on the bus for the freedom rides, right? To get beat up and get back on the bus to go to the next place, to get beat up again to show up every day and to sit at the lunch counter and deal with that type of physical, I'm not talking about even intimidation, the physical violence that people stood up under, the way that John Lewis was beaten and got back up the next day, that it's not about taking good photos for my Twitter page or doing a nice hashtag around freedom justice from you know, the confines of my great coffee shop, that that was actual on the ground, another a level of danger that I would argue that the movement doesn't have today. Let, let me tell you what I mean by that, because we, we've had really long conversations in my class that if you go back and read the literature of the civil rights movement and you know, Dr. Sterling, you, you lived through it, my father, there was a sense that you could die when you went out and you marched. 
Every day. Every day. It was not just, you know, if you're like my dad in South Carolina, it wasn't just that, oh, wow, I'm, I'm going to take a nice photo that I'll then post of me getting arrested, right? That you actually could die when you went out there. When I marched with my sons here in Baltimore City during the uprising of Freddie Gray, when we watched march through DC for 18 hours, there was, I mean, it was a level of excitement. They were singing and chanting, but there was never a sense that, you know, they actually could bring out the dogs and the water hoses, that we could be killed. That, that was, that was, there wasn't that sense because that's not the kind of movement it is, right? Yes, you have the individual killings of black men and black women, yes. But in terms of just setting the dogs loose, turning the water hoses on, the type of outrage because of the camera phones and the way in which society is moving, it is different. And when young people say that, I'm like, have we not taught the history correctly? Have we not informed them that it wasn't just singing, we shall overcome? Have we not really explained to them the amount of courage it takes to practice non-bias? How hard that is and the training that was done at the Highlander Institute so that people could go against your natural instinct. Because your natural instinct, if someone hits you, your natural instinct is to hit back, right? That means just your babies do it. We don't have to teach babies how to hit back. They just do it, right? How do you go against your natural instinct when someone punches you in the face to not punch back? Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's one level of disconnect. The second is that the young people really don't want to hear the wisdom of the elders in the same way that they may have wanted to hear it in the beginning, right? So I tell people now for people my age and, and more mature, like you got to get in with, with, the, with your checkbook right now. How do you lean in to provide funds for young people who may need, need lawyers, young people who may need to, to be able to travel to have these talks. How do you help arrange gatherings so we can have spaces? How can you be the Ella Baker today rather than the John Lewis, right? Because if you're over, if you're a Gen Xer and beyond, you're not gonna be John Lewis, but you can be an Ella Baker. Yeah. And Ella Baker is needed. See, we never saw King be anyone other than King. But if King had lived into his, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, he would have become Ella Baker. King wouldn't have been out there marching in the same way at 65 that he did at 27. He would be able to advise, to guide, to write a check if need be, to provide a safe space and harbor, to make sure that history is being taught effectively. Like rather than inserting ourselves in the front of the movement, right? Like a Reverend Al Sharpton, we're actually helping to nurture the next group of leaders. So they have the history along with their youth, along with their passion to be able to carry the movement to the next level. It's like we have to learn how to get out of formation. I think that the amazing thing about birds is that, you know, it's, you don't have to fight for leadership. The lead bird gets tired, the next one just falls in formation and you follow that one. I think so often when it comes to these the activist moments, the lead bird never wants to admit they're tired. Like you got to fall out of formation, but you have to help the next person to learn how to lead so you can fall back and then they can lead you in the next place you need to go. We need some of our, our activist elders to step out of the spotlight and help to nurture the next wave of talent. It's a good word. Yeah. Good word. yeah. So in reality, Dr. Whitehead, there is a space where it's the young and the old, we've got to go forth together. Yeah. In different capacities, but 
it's not either or, it's both and. We must, uh, and Dr. Uh, Sterling and I have talked about this with your father, by the way, several <laughs> times of how even in what we do, we see the need to bring in the younger generation of PhDs and, and young people because, you know, he calls the old because they, they know the way and the young because they're strong. Right. And so one of our best strategies, I think, is to indeed come together uh, in this journey that God has called us to. And, but I love the way you said, and I think I shared with you at one point about divine serendipity, that you're in the archives, just doing your study, thing like that. And you just literally just stumble into the purposes of God. And, and it wasn't planned. It wasn't a strategy. It, God just brought you that way. Or as they said of uh, Rosa Parks, you know, she was tracked down by the, the tide of destiny. And uh, I'm so glad that God has brought you into the kingdom for such a time. I'm so glad that your father has made the investment. I, I, as too, I too have a daughter uh, with a PhD. And uh, I'm so glad that it, I, I wasn't able to give her the financial backing that, uh, you know, I'm not a rich man in the natural but her drive, her ability, her, her tenacity, I know she got that from me, as well as her mother, by the way. I need to add in <laughs> what you call quiet strength. She has quiet strength. And, uh, but uh, I, do, I do celebrate what God is doing. So, so what, what, is the, what is the hope for you of the next phase, the next steps in our struggle in America? It's interesting that you talked about... Um, about not being a rich man and not being able to financially support your, your daughter in the ways that you would have liked. I had this conversation with my 17 year old who is applying for college now. And I spoke to him just last night in the phone, in the car, because he was talking about how all of his classmates, everyone's riding up in a brand new car, in a Benz, in an Audi, in a Lexus, and, you know, mom's still dropping them off in the old squeaky Jeep, and now he'd like to be dropped off a block. He used to be a block from school, now he wants to be dropped off a mile from school, he's like, because the car is just too loud. <laughs> and so, he's just, you know, he was going through lamenting how hard he has it. And I said to him, I said, you know, I'm going to say it like, like my father would say to me, silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I give to you. Yes. So as you go off to your private school and you're complaining about the squeaky Jeep, I said, just understand that you come from a long line of survivors. I said, we come from people who were enslaved and worked so that they could one day have people in our place <clears throat> be free that we are here today. I said, understand, buddy. I said, granddaddy walked so I could run. I'm running so you can fly. So I'm gonna drive you in the squeaky car up to the front door. I said, but when you get out of this car, you get out and you take all of our ancestors with you. You get out with your head up high because you can come from a squeaky car and make it to the White House and in easy steps because you have everything you need inside of you. So it's not about money. It's silver and gold have I none but what I have, I give to you. And I mm -hmm. think when I talk to young people and I'm like, how can I help you? I said, look, and I go back to that cup, silver and gold have I none. I can't write you a check if you need a, a top lawyer. I can't do that. But what I have, I give to you. I said, cause sometimes what you need and you don't even know you need it. Sometimes you just need to know somebody's praying for you. I said, sometimes when you go out and you're marching, you may not understand 
And when Dr. King was on the front line, there were people praying for him. I said, that's yeah. what I can give you. I can pray for you. I can stand in support. I can defend you. And I can be there for you. We are going to change this world and we're going to change this nation. We're going to do it come November 3rd. And what happened comes November 3rd, we're going to keep working to change this world because we have the power of God on our side. Mm. And when God is for you, who can be against you? Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Whitehead, we also have Lois Alina, and uh, she's been with us. And as I told you, uh, 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 Elaine's gone. And also there's another, I have another white friend. You met Tom Benz. He was on last week. Yes. You know, our goal is straight talk so that we can have a, a courageous conversation with the intent of being reconciled around truth. Right. And uh, you, you didn't get to meet uh, Lois, but I want Lois to at least say hello to you and uh, make a little space for that connection to be made. Because on the celebration next week, I know Lois would love to be a part of the reception uh, in honor of your father, what you got going at Loyola there at the same time. Thank you so much, Dr. Whitehead, for being here. I, I wasn't able to be here last week. My husband and I were celebrating our 40th anniversary. Um, but uh, I, I did watch the, watch the program from last week and I so appreciate your life, your heart, your, your, the connection with, with your dad. And you know, I, I had a dad that I loved so much too and who profoundly impacted my life. And, there's, there's really nothing like that. And I think, you know, that what you've been saying about the intergenerational transmission of, of faith um, and, and, and that relationship is so important. And also what you're saying about, uh, you know, God, God finding you at that very moment, you know, and uh, in that archive and directing your path. And he does that. I mean, you see all through scripture how he does this with, with his followers. And I, I think that's so important because different people have different gifts. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I think we're, you know, we all want to um, do what it is that, that God wants us to do. And, you know, that's my heart. And, and I'm, um, uh, you know, we're running out of time to be able to share more, but I just want to just overflow with gratitude for you, for your life, for your writings, for your speaking. I'm glad to have uh, been enriched by uh, you these last couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Thank you very mm. much. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an honor and a privilege. Dr. Gayton, I will forward you, sir, the invitation. Please share it uh, with your network. I would love to have you all join me next Wednesday uh, when I can honor my father in ways that I've always dreamed of doing. And if I start talking about it now, I'll get choked up because I know what it means to send children off to college. My father said, all we can give you is $50 in the box of Tide and all of our <laughs> prayers go with you. So I'm happy to be able to return that, that $50 in that box of Tide, hopefully next Wednesday. Amen. Dr. Whitehead, uh, be yes, before sir. you leave, and I know you, you, you're challenged with time, but, um, as, as an activist historian uh, who, <laughs> who, uh, who, who seems to be very, very well planted and your, and your, uh, your legacy uh, looking back, and um, I don't want to use the term a legacy or anti, but looking backwards is very solid. Um, I, I've been looking and, and hoping that someone with your background would take an honest look at 
the timeline of when things occurred and what was going on at the time that they occurred. And I'm talking about uh, probably pre-16th pre century, which is going to be fast up until the uh, 18th and 19th and 20th century. So that we can see that this, this plight that we're on has is bigger than what we're able to just grasp right now. Let me give you an example. We talk about the Montgomery bus boycott, which is important. And it was a, a point in history that no one should ever forget. But, but we, we very rarely talk about the reality that Martin, that uh, Dr. King and uh, I don't know if Fred was with him, but, but some of the others came over to Baton Rouge where, where, where the first successful boycott, bus boycott had occurred. Now, I think our people need to know both and I think that it would benefit all people. Uh, we talk about the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but we don't talk about the bridge uh, uh, where, where we had to get Hosea out of uh, Baton Rouge uh, called the Mississippi Bridge, which goes by the White Eagle Club. And that made that a historical area. We don't talk about those things because they didn't make the headlines. They didn't make the headlines, but we should not have to depend upon the headlines. We need people like yourself, scholars, who have done the research historically and is not afraid to write it. I'm not trying to give you an assignment. I'm just telling you that this well, is what I hope. Well, let me say, I, I, I received that assignment, uh, Dr. Sterling, and I will begin to work on it. Um, as I go, I actually have class at 11 o'clock. So I have students who are banging down my Zoom door. Yes. Uh, but Dr. Sterling, I look forward to following up and to, um, to doing the good work that you just laid out. Thank you so much, sir. Amen. Okay. Bless you, Dr. Whitehead. Well, uh, that is bringing our show Straight Talk to a conclusion this morning. And uh, Dr. Golfin is already gone. So I am the new uh, host of this program. And I'd like to thank everyone for being on, listening to us. Uh, Dr. Sterling, thank you for your input, Dr. Lois, uh, and everyone, and especially Dr. And so we have an invitation next Wednesday at noon to be a part of the reception and I plan to attend. I hope everyone that wants to, and I'll send it out. When she sends me the information, I'll send it out to everyone, and everybody is welcome. And uh, I'm just sorry that whatever food they're going to have at the reception uh, on Zoom, I can't get the food. You know, I don't. You know, all I get to do is I don't even get to smell the food. You know, but I hope everybody has learned something, been blessed by this program, and I look forward to seeing everybody next week. Have a, a Lord bless you, keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon each one of you and give you shalom in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless. Love you guys. God bless.